Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out any show notes from this episode, listen to other episodes, or learn about Trip Hacks DC guided tours, you can do all of that over at TripHacksDC.com. If you're new to this podcast or Trip Hacks DC in general, hello, my name is Rob. I'm a tour guide and the founder of Trip Hacks DC. My mission is to give you my best tips, tricks, and travel hacks so you can have the best possible trip when you come to Washington, DC. This is episode number 50, and as luck would have it, the almost five-year anniversary of this podcast, which launched in September 2018. In some ways, it's hard to wrap my head around this number. 50 episodes. That might not seem like a lot compared to some of the other big podcasts that I'm sure you know and probably even listen to, but for me, it's a big deal because this podcast is a one-man show. I'm the host, the producer, the editor, the guest recruiter, everything. Right before COVID, I attended and presented at PodFest, a big podcaster's convention in Orlando. It was a really cool event, and I met some great people there. But one thing I distinctly remember is a discussion about a concept called pod fade. If you can remember, around that time, it felt like everyone and their brother was starting a podcast. The reality was that most of them were never going to make it. They'd suffer from pod fade, which is when someone excitedly starts a new podcast, publishes a few episodes, and then for whatever reasons, gives up and abandons it. The exact numbers are open for debate. But some people say if you make it to podcast episode number 10, you've conquered Podfade. Some people say if you make it to episode 5, you've survived it. I'm happy to think that at episode 50, the Trip Hacks DC podcast has made it. Producing this podcast is actually one of my favorite aspects of running Trip Hacks DC. I've had some amazing guests. I've had some, what I think, very valuable solo episodes. The thing about podcasts is that the audience is much more niche. If you're listening to this right now, you are part of an elite VIP group of people. In total, this podcast reaches far fewer people than other TripHacksDC channels. There are single videos on the TripHacksDC TikTok account that have more views than all the podcasts over the past five years combined. But you know what? That's okay. Because I know that everyone who chooses to listen to a TripHacksDC podcast episode wants to be here. It's not something that just came across your screen while you were sitting around bored or standing in line at the supermarket flipping through while you wait. So that's all to say to everyone listening right now, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this ride. 50 is a big number, but I hope to eventually celebrate an even bigger number. Speaking of amazing guests, for this episode, I asked some of my friends many of whom you've heard as guests on previous episodes, if they have any questions for me about Washington, D.C., being a tour guide, running a tour company, or anything like that. And they definitely delivered some great questions. In answering their questions, I'm going to give you a never-before-heard, behind-the-scenes look at TripHex D.C. But I feel like I'm going to also have some nuggets of knowledge to share that will be beneficial for anyone planning a D.C. trip. So I hope Everyone will get some value from this episode. And with that said, let's jump right into the questions. Hi, Rob. It's Joanne Hill, author of Secret Washington, D.C., A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure, and D.C. Scavenger. Congratulations on your 50th episode. 
Well, of course, writing all about secret weird things in DC, I have to ask, what's the weirdest thing that's happened on a tour? Thanks for the question, Joanne. I interviewed Joanne about both of her DC books, so check out episodes 29 and 44 to listen to those. In response to this question, I feel like I'm lucky that my tours go off 99% of the time without a hitch. I don't even really worry about weird things happening, but one that does come to mind was back in, I think, 2017 or 2018. The context here is that the Marine Corps does a sunset parade on Tuesdays. It's usually held at the Iwo Jima Memorial, but for a couple of years, they held it at the Lincoln Memorial while the Iwo Jima was under construction. So, it was Tuesday, I was giving my tour, and the parade had just ended. It just so happens that on this evening, the acting Secretary of Defense was in the audience, and he himself was a former Marine. So, I'm walking past with my group, and I said, oh, I think that's so-and-so, the Secretary of Defense, and my group, they're not into these sorts of things. So they said, who? I've never heard of him. And the secretary's handler, the guy who was with him, who was a Marine, absolutely was so offended. He couldn't believe that someone didn't know who this guy was. And he just kept going on and on about how he's this decorated Marine and he had this amazing career and now he's the Secretary of Defense. And I can't believe you'd never seen him or never heard of him before. It was really quite an interesting situation. But in any case, they found out who he was that night, even if they didn't know who he was before. So I'd say that was a bit of a weird one. Haven't had anything quite like that since. That's the one that sticks to to my mind. The next question is from Jennifer Liao, who joined me for episode 46, Tips for Visiting D.C. with Kids of All Ages. So go ahead, Jennifer. My question is, how many tours do you give per day? This is a really great question, and I actually think it's the most frequent question that I get from guests who take my tour. Short answer, one tour per day. Long answer, it depends on the season. I'm recording this in July. And in July, I only give one tour per day. And the reason for that is because it's just too hot. Weather in D.C. in July is not great. It's pretty much guaranteed to be hot, humid, and kind of miserable every day of July. And the thing about the heat and the humidity is it just saps your energy. So my tour, which is approximately three hours long, on the National Mall, in the park, outdoors, To do that two times per day would just absolutely take a toll on me. That said, I did this year give multiple tours per day the weekend before the 4th of July and, as expected, absolutely wrecked me. Totally sapped all my energy and by the 4th of July, I just had to take it easy because as much as I would have liked to go to the fireworks this year, I couldn't do it. So in the spring and the fall, I might offer more tours. Spring tends to be when I actually do because spring break is peak season in D.C. with the cherry blossoms and all, but... Generally speaking, one tour per day. And that is why it is so important to get your bookings and reservations early if you're visiting during a peak period. Because once I'm booked, I'm booked. And that's it. All right, let's move to the next question from Megan Murad, who is my guest in episode 39, New York City Tour Guide Reviews DC. How did you get into tour guiding? The story of how I got into tour guide is, I'm afraid, not particularly satisfying. I graduated college during the Great Recession and was lucky to have a single job offer. About half of my graduating class, I would guess, had no job offer. Some of them became unemployed, kept looking for jobs. Others went straight to graduate school, figuring they'd wait it out a few more years and then try to find a job. 
I was lucky because I had an offer. I had one job offer, and it was not a particularly highly paid job, and so I needed more money. I needed another job. I thought about all the things I could potentially do in the evenings and on the weekends and kind of narrowed it down to like working at a restaurant or a bar, and none of those were particularly interesting to me. And then I remembered that I had previously taken a tour that I really enjoyed. And it's also lucky because a lot of the big tour companies in D.C., they're always looking for help. And a related question to this is, how did I decide to start Trip Hacks DC specifically? And if you want the full-blown story behind that, I was a guest on the Side Hustle Show, and I will link to that in the show notes, and told the story of how and why I started Trip Hacks DC specifically. But the short version is, also not particularly satisfying, but probably the way that most small business stories go. I was working for somebody else, getting a lot of experience, and one day I thought, I think I could make a go of this on my own. So two big changes that I made when I started TripXDC compared to the company I was working for. The first is that TripXDC is a walking tour, and I had previously been doing a bike tour. And what I realized doing the bike tour is that the bike doesn't actually get you around much faster on the National Mall. And the reason is because you can't bring bikes into the sites. You know, people are not lugging bikes up the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial. And so the the tour guide winds up being kind of like a chaperone taking you from one site to the next, but then hanging out with the bikes and not actually going into the sites with you. And to me, it is a much better experience for the guests when the tour guide actually goes inside and shows you up close. The other big difference is when I started TripXDC, it was exclusively private tours, which meant if you signed up for a tour, you were getting me, and I was showing just your group around, nobody else. Uh, And that's different from a public tour, which is what I did on the bikes, where people bought tickets and then joined up with other travelers and went out that way. Uh, TripXDC does now have public tours as well, but it started exclusively as private tours. This next question is from Shane Whaley, who is my guest in episode 27, the best Washington, D.C. tours and activities. Hi, Rob. It's Shane Whaley, and my question for you is, how do most tour guests find your tours? This one's an easy question. Most guests find my tours because they watch videos on the DC YouTube channel, and then after they've seen my face however many times, decide they want to take a tour. The second most common way is this podcast. And the third most common way is referrals from family and friends, which in tourism is kind of the holy grail. When someone takes a tour, has such a great time that they go home and rave about it to all their family and friends, and then when those people come to D.C., they say, hey, I want to do that too. I do not list TripHex D.C. on third-party booking websites, so if you go on to any of them to try to find all the tours in D.C., know that that is not a comprehensive directory, and in fact, I would argue that many of the best things are not listed on those websites because... To put it bluntly, those third-party booking websites are fairly abusive to the companies that list there, and I just don't want to deal with it. So DC are not on any of them. But if you want more of my thoughts on this topic, episode 32 is a full-blown discussion of why I think you should always book direct when you travel. Let's go next to Carolyn Moraskin, the owner of DC Design Tours and a guest on several previous podcast episodes, including episode number one, Stories of DC's Monuments and Memorials, and number 36, Lesser Known Monuments in DC. Hey Rob, it's Carolyn from DC Design Tours. What's your favorite stop on your National Mall Monuments Tour? I'm sure that a tour guide like Carolyn knows this is an impossible question to answer. It's like choosing your favorite kid. But if my life depended on answering this question, I would choose the Lincoln Memorial. 
I have been to the Lincoln Memorial thousands of times, and let me tell you, it never gets old. Lincoln is also my favorite president, so that kind of skews my opinion about the monuments. That said, I think the Korean War Memorial is the most underappreciated stop on the Tripex DC Monuments Tour, and I think the FDR Memorial is my favorite in the sense that when I take guests there, they are the most surprised by how cool it is. And often will say afterwards when I ask what's their favorite monument, they say FDR because they didn't even know it existed. Of course, my diplomatic answer is that they're all my favorite, just for different reasons. Now, let's go to Mark Walters of Walters World. Mark was my guest in episode 24, Tips for Traveling During COVID, as well as a handful of videos on the TripHex DC YouTube channel. Hey Rob, it's Mark from Walters World, and I was wondering... Does giving the same monuments tour ever get boring? This is a really great question, and I'll say that if giving the tour ever gets boring, it means I'm doing it wrong. A lot of people think tours are just information. The tour guide just stands in front of you and regurgitates facts, like a lecturer. And if that's how a tour is being operated, that's a bad tour. A skilled tour guide knows that a good tour is not about the sights. It's not about facts. It's not about information. It's about the people taking the tour. That's why I like giving private tours so much. But even with a public group tour, the reason why I developed the Monumental Trivia Tour is for that engagement and interaction. As long as I keep getting to meet interesting, awesome people who sign up for my tours, then it will never get old. Now, let's go to the other half of the Walters World team with Jocelyn, who is my guest in episode 19, Airbnb, the good, the bad, and the ugly. By the way, before I play Jocelyn's question, I do want to say I am working on an updated Airbnb podcast episode as my thoughts and opinions about Airbnb have changed in the years since we recorded that episode. Hey, Rob, Jocelyn from Walter's World, and you have a ton of information in your tours. How did you learn it all? I want to start answering this question by saying that none of the material on my tour is secret or proprietary. My main tour is the National Monuments and Memorials, and believe me, there have been countless books written about these, documentaries, interviews with the designers, etc. So my process for learning the material is pretty straightforward. The first thing I do, quite literally, is read the brochure. Every site has a National Park Service brochure that you can pick up and read. It's very basic, but it's a great place to start. After I do that, I dig a little bit deeper. I read books, I watch documentaries, I listen to the interviews with the designers, I learn all the little details about these places that you're not going to get from the brochure. And I'm not going to lie, I've learned a lot from other tour guides as well. The great thing about taking a tour is that every tour guide has their own personality, and some people deliver information in a certain way, or uh, have certain stories that they tell, and I've definitely picked up things from other tour guides that I've incorporated into my own. Never copied, because I can only give a tour that's mine and not somebody else's, but definitely used for inspiration. I hope that everyone who takes the tour learns something new, but it's more important to me that they have fun and a memorable experience. Let's go back to Jennifer Liao for another excellent question. Hi Rob, it's Jennifer. My question is, have you ever had a celebrity take your tour? Walter's World was definitely the biggest celebrity I've ever had on my tour. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Kind of. Uh, I've never had a movie star or a sports star sign up for my tour. I'd love to show celebrities around if they're up for it. 
I know sports teams travel to D.C. for their games, and I see the photos that they take hanging out on the National Mall. Uh, For example, in 2021, Rafael Nadal was in D.C. for the City Open, and he got a lot of coverage for posting about how much he loved the city. He was posting about running around the Capitol, the monuments, the National Mall. He was posting all of this on social media, and people were definitely digging it. A few weeks ago, I was walking to my tour, and the Seattle Storm basketball team was getting on their bus to head off to their game against the Mystics. And I thought, you know, how cool would it be if they signed up for my tour? I know they're very busy with practice and games and everything, but I think it would be really cool if a team who was here to play one of the local teams signed up for a tour. Hasn't happened yet, but who knows? Maybe one day it will. So if you're listening to this and you're a celebrity or a sports star, get in touch. Let me know. Now, let's go to Nicole Glass, an amazing photographer and guest in Episode 2, Washington, D.C. Photography Tips. Hi, Rob. I have a question for you. How often do you see the president in D.C.? The answer to this is easy. Never. I have never seen the president in D.C. One of the biggest misconceptions for tourists, I think, about D.C. is how big of a role national politics plays in daily life. Now, some people do work for the federal government or they do work in Congress And for those people, it's obviously a big part of daily life. But for everyone else, not really. I also think people really don't appreciate how infrequently the president leaves the White House. The president both lives and works at the White House. He's been working from home long before working from home was hip. And then when the president does leave, it's usually to travel by plane somewhere else in the country or the world. An interesting story on this topic is that earlier in the year, I had a family from Iowa who came on my tour, and they asked me this exact question. And I said, I've never seen the president in D.C. And they said, well, we've actually met several presidents, which makes sense because in order to become president, you have to participate in the pageantry that is the Iowa caucus. All these presidential candidates spend weeks or months traveling around Iowa trying to win people over. They go to big cities, or at least as big as a city in Iowa can be. They go to small towns. They go to rural areas. They go to the suburbs. They go to diners. They go to the state fair. They shake hands with lots of different people. That's the nature of the national political system. From the primaries to the electoral college, certain parts of the country will see a lot of presidential campaigning, while others will see literally none. And in D.C., we see none. And then when the president is in the White House, we don't really see much of him either. Next, I have a related question from Rebecca Grawl, who was most recently a guest in episode 40, Women's History Sites in Washington, D.C. Hi, Rob. It's Rebecca. My question is, are motorcades disruptive to your tours? Motorcades are almost never disruptive to my tours, except when they are. What the heck does that mean? Motorcades in D.C. are actually not that disruptive. Secret Service knows how to navigate a motorcade in D.C., and they can do it fairly quickly and efficiently. This is different from when the president travels elsewhere in the country or the world, where motorcades are much more disruptive because when in an unfamiliar place, more streets need to be closed down and more caution needs to be taken. I still, almost a decade later, have people from the UK mention when the US president visited London in 2011 and gridlocked that city for days. Now, I said motorcades aren't disruptive except when they are. For example, this year, on April 26th, the president of the United States and the president of South Korea visited the Korean War Memorial together. 
that site visit was very disruptive to my tour. Though I suppose one should point out that it was the site visit that was disruptive, not necessarily the motorcade. For a lot of tourists, I know that seeing a motorcade is exciting. I get it. What a lot of people don't realize is that when you see a motorcade, it's more likely to be the vice president's motorcade than the president's. The president, again, works from home, and the Veep has to commute. On the topic of having a president visiting from another country, let's go back to Jocelyn Walters for a similar question. Hey, Rob, Jocelyn from Walters World, and I'm curious as to how many of your customers are from other countries. Not too many, actually. Washington, D.C., generally speaking, is not a big destination for international tourism. New York City gets way more international tourists than we do. Orlando, Florida gets way more international tourists than we do. I have a lot of theories about why this is, but ultimately I think a lot of international tourists see Washington, D.C. as the place where you go for U.S. government and U.S. history, and if you're from another country, those things just might not interest you. On the other hand, New York City is the biggest city in America. People know it from the movies. Orlando has Mickey Mouse, and people worldwide love that mouse. I believe overall 90% of Washington, D.C. tourists are domestic. And I would say that's also about the demographic that comes on my tours. So if I give 100 tours, only about 10 of them will be groups from outside the U.S. I'm always curious whether people think this number is high or low. On the one hand, I think people figure that, since D.C. is the capital of the USA, international visitors will want to come. I don't necessarily think this is true. I think it's true in countries like the U.K. and Ireland and France because the capital city also happens to be the biggest city. I don't think it's true in countries like Canada or Australia, which are more similar to the U.S. in this regard. But that's just my hypothesis. And speaking of New York City... Let's go back to New York City tour guide Megan Murad for what I think is the spiciest question that anyone submitted. What's your biggest pet peeve as a tour guide? This one raised my blood pressure a little bit because I feel like when you do any job long enough, you start to develop some pretty strong pet peeves. It's hard to narrow it down to just one, so I'm actually going to pick two. One is something that you, the traveler, can control, and the other is one that you kind of can't. For the one that you can't. I actually find 8th grade field trips to be a pet peeve of mine. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think student travel generally is bad. My pet peeve is that I think 8th grade is the wrong year to send kids on a D.C. field trip. I don't personally specialize in student group trips, but I've given a handful of them over the years, and I find 11th and 12th graders have a much better time on a D.C. trip than 7th or 8th graders. A lot of the main tourist sites in D.C. are historical sites or museums where you need to have some knowledge and context going in if you're going to have a really good experience. And I think by 11th or 12th grade, you've gotten this. Older teenagers are just, frankly, more mature than younger teenagers. If I was the emperor of the U.S. educational system, I would replace 8th grade field trips with 12th grade field trips. I think that would be better for everyone the students, the tour guides, the chaperones, and other people visiting D.C. at the same time. But alas, I am not the emperor of the U.S. educational system, so the best I can do is help visitors navigate around these groups. My other tour guide pet peeve is when guests arrive late for the tour. Now, I was actually discussing this with another tour guide recently, and they said, you know what, I don't care if people show up late or not. If they show up late, they get to see less, and they get a shorter tour. That's just how it is. 
I don't know if a lot of travelers realize this, but that's actually standard operating procedure for a lot of companies. If the tour is supposed to be three hours long and have eight stops and you show up late, your tour might be two and a half hours long and have seven stops. Or if it's a public group tour, they're gonna start when the tour is scheduled to start. And if you arrive late, then you just miss however many of the first minutes of the tour. are. The problem for me is that I'm too much of a perfectionist and believer that every single stop on my tour is a must see. Nothing is skippable. So when groups arrive late, it puts me in a tough spot. Either I have to stay late so that they can see everything, or I have to cut their tour short, or rush it to squeeze through everything. None of these is a great option. And sometimes I just can't stay late. I have personal responsibilities or an appointment I have to get to after the tour has ended. If we are supposed to be finished by eight o'clock, sometimes I just have to be finished by eight o'clock. So if you've ever taken a Triphex DC tour, you know I ask everyone to arrive at least 15 minutes early. This might seem excessive, but trust me, it is far better to arrive early than it is to cut it close or be late. I am fully aware that Triphex DC tours are not cheap. They're a splurge. There's something special for people's trip, and I want you to have the best possible experience, so please arrive on time. Okay, thank you to everyone who submitted a question about Triphex DC or my tour guiding career. There are a bunch more questions about this podcast, the Triphex DC YouTube channel, some of my favorite things in DC, but I need a quick break to go refill my iced coffee before we get to the rest of the questions. If you're listening to this podcast, my hunch is that you're probably planning an upcoming trip to Washington, D.C., or at least dreaming about a future adventure. One thing I've learned from meeting thousands of travelers and doing a bit of traveling myself over the years is that experiences are usually the best memories from a trip. That's why I started Trip Hacks DC. I didn't just want to create content to help you plan a trip, but also to provide an amazing experience once you arrive. And I think it's worked because people tell me all the time that their Trip Hacks DC tour was the highlight of their trip. And that really makes me happy. So if that's something that sounds up your alley, you can head over to triphacksdc.com to learn about taking a private tour with me or a public group tour with one of the amazing Trip Hacks DC tour guides. And we're back. And let's go back to Joanne Hill, local DC author, for a bit of a meta question. I also would love to know, as someone who has been on your podcast two times and I've really enjoyed myself, what made you decide to start this podcast? If you go back to 2017, when I founded Trip Hacks DC, almost all of the effort was put into the YouTube channel. I saw the YouTube channel as the best shot I had at getting the word out about tours and to help people prepare for a DC trip. And generally speaking, it worked exactly as intended. But the problem is that videos are really time consuming to produce. I was producing videos about four to five minutes long that first year, and it was taking many hours just to make a five minute video. And while I am a big believer in content that is short, sweet, and to the point, the reality is that there is only so much you can squeeze into five minutes. So I wanted a format where I could produce longer pieces of content, but not get bogged down with the video production. Podcast wound up being perfect for that. My other motivation for starting the podcast was that I wanted a venue for guests to come and share their knowledge and expertise. I have done some video collaborations, but I find that people are more comfortable with an audio interview than recording a video. An example of this is episode two, 
tips for DC photography with Nicole Glass. I'm not a photographer. I don't want to give advice about photography when I don't really know what I'm doing. Another example is episode 48, Accessible Travel Tips with The Inclusive Traveler. Accessibility is an extremely important topic, and I wanted to make sure that I had guests who could do the topic justice. I definitely think my guests nailed it. My intention was actually never to do solo episodes, and if you go back and look, you'll see the first solo episode wasn't until episode 20, and of the first 30 episodes, only two of them were solos. But when I looked at the analytics, it seemed like the solo episodes were just as well liked and received as the episodes with guests, so now I do more of a mix. And that's actually a good segue into the next question, which is from Chris from Yellow Productions, who is my guest in episode 26, Washington, D.C. Hotel Tips, as well as a couple of videos we did together last year. Hey, Rob, this is Chris Rainey, host of the Yellow Productions Travel Channel on YouTube, and I've got a couple of questions for you that are hopefully going to be fun, informative, and entertaining. And my first question for you is, now that you've recorded 50 podcast episodes and almost 400 videos on YouTube, what have been your favorite videos or podcasts to make, and why? When it comes to the videos, the ones that I'm most proud of are what I call my hero videos. Things like my Ultimate Washington, D.C. Travel Guide, 50 Things Visitors Can Do, and How to Ride the Metro. These are videos that I put a lot of effort into. If you watch my Ultimate Guide video, for example, it has quite a few map-based animations, and I spent a lot of time perfecting those. In my 50 Things to Do video, I had to collect a lot of footage to include in that one. And the reason I find these so rewarding is because these are typically the videos that people will watch and then comment, Wow, this was really helpful for planning my trip. Ultimately, that's what these videos are all for, helping people plan their trip. When it comes to the podcast, I love making podcast episodes with guests. Back when I went to that PodFest convention before COVID, I heard someone on stage say something to the effect of, the best thing about having a podcast is that I get to have conversations with people that I would otherwise have no business taking an hour from their day. And I think that resonates for me too. I can't call out every single guest, as that would take forever, but I'll mention a few notable ones that I still talk about the most. The first was my weather episode that I did with Jason Samanow, meteorologist for the Washington Post. I actually traveled to the Washington Post office with my recorder and my microphones and interviewed him there. And that was a really memorable experience. Obviously, weather is a huge part of running a tour company, but as a lowly tour guide, I'm not exactly trained in the science of weather, so getting to nerd out with Jason was really cool. Similarly, the food episodes I've done with Jessica Sidman from Washingtonian Magazine. Undoubtedly, my biggest soft spot when it comes to running TripHex DC is that I am not an expert on food and restaurants. I love going to restaurants, but there are way too many restaurants in DC for me to personally visit them all. So it's really hard to give good recommendations because I don't really feel comfortable recommending things or places I haven't personally experienced. I feel like Jessica has been writing about food for a while and really knows her stuff, so it's kind of an honor to pass that knowledge onto the listeners of this podcast. Okay, queued up next, I've got another question from Mark from Walter's World. Hey Rob, it's Mark from Walter's World, and I was wondering, um, how do you come up with the ideas for your YouTube videos and podcast episodes? I try to take a pretty simple approach to content ideas. Basically, what questions are people asking me, and what's going to help people have their best possible trip? The nice thing about YouTube, in particular, is that people leave comments and after a while you start seeing trends, and then you can make videos on those topics. That said, when it comes to this genre of content, tips for tourists, 
The more broad topics tend to get more views than the niche topics. For example, in my past year, my ultimate Washington, D.C. travel guide has done pretty well, as has my 50 things to do video, whereas my capital bike share videos, even though I think they're really helpful and I'm really proud that I made them, tend to not get very many views. And that's just something I've come to expect. I'm not going to stop making content like how to ride capital bike share just because it doesn't have a huge audience. I still think it's really important, especially for the people who need that info. Another thing I do for inspiration is I watch a lot of YouTube myself and I listen to a lot of podcasts. There are plenty of very talented people in other cities that make similar videos and podcasts. While I would never want to copy any of them because I believe everyone has their own style and you can only be your authentic self, I do often find inspiration from those other channels. Related to this, someone recently asked me how I haven't run out of ideas yet. I've been doing Trip DC for six years. Surely there isn't much left that I haven't already covered. And to that, I will say two things. First, Washington DC is way bigger than a lot of people give credit for. Washington DC gets overshadowed by New York City, especially when it comes to tourism. And it's true that New York City is the biggest city in America and it's bigger than Washington DC. But that doesn't mean that DC is small. There are plenty of topics to cover here. The second thing I'll say is that in tourism, everything is constantly changing. If you applied this logic to say travel books, Lonely Planet would have published a travel guide in the 1970s and said, okay, we've got DC covered. Obviously travel books are constantly being updated and rewritten. And to some extent, it's the same for what I do. A lot of the earliest Trip Hacks DC content is already out of date. So it may be true that I've covered all the main topics, but I'm also going back and improving on those old ones. So in theory, I should never run out of ideas because as soon as I feel like I've covered everything, I'll just go back and realize that what I've covered before is now dated or could use a refresh. Okay, here's another great question from Chris from Yellow Productions. Washington DC seems to be the kind of place with a lot of security and police around. How often do you get asked to stop recording videos or how often have you been asked to actually leave for doing what you do? The short answer to this is almost never. And I think there are a few reasons for that. The first is that my typical video style is not filmed on location. It's not like a travel vlog style where every scene is filmed in the actual place. My usual video format is a talking head video on a topic with some footage edited over me. I've tried recording my talking head segments out in the city, but it's actually really hard. You've got to get the position of the sun right, which usually means facing towards the sun, which doesn't really work for me because I have sensitive eyes and then it looks like I'm squinting in the video. And in a lot of places, audio is particularly challenging. On the National Mall, there is airplane noise almost every 60 seconds like clockwork and filming there is difficult. This is all to say I have a much easier time recording my videos indoors in front of a green screen and editing on the background. And even though I know it doesn't look 100% realistic every time, I still feel like it looks and sounds better than if I tried to film the exact location where the background is. That said, my video style does require quite a bit of additional stock footage, or what a lot of video makers would call B-roll footage. I film almost all of my B-roll footage on my phone. I have a Pixel 7 phone that captures very good quality video for YouTube, and it's the best camera for me because it's the one I always have with me. 
in general, I find that because everybody is taking pictures and videos of everything all the time on their phone now, you don't really get bothered about it. But I imagine if I was trying to record on a huge professional video camera, I might get some questions. Actually, National Park Service does have rules for professional photography. And I believe if you are using a certain size professional camera or if you're using tripods or other equipment, you do need special permits. But if you're just pulling out a phone out of your pocket, doing a few quick photos or videos, that's exempted. The closest I've ever gotten to getting in trouble was when I was recording my How to Tour the Capitol video. Apparently, I took a photo, not even a video, just a photo of the doors that lead into the area with the metal detectors. And the Capitol Police officer who was nearby did not like that one bit. He really chewed me out about how this is a secure area and photos aren't allowed. And in the moment, I thought I was about to get kicked out and I wasn't going to be making that video. But I guess he just wanted to vent because I was allowed through and the rest of the tour was great. So, yeah, my advice is no matter what kind of camera you have and no matter whether it's video or just a photo, maybe don't pull it out in an area with a lot of metal detectors around. Okay, and one last video-related question from Nicole Glass. How long does it take to make each video? This is another common question that I get from guests on my tours, and the unsatisfying answer is, it depends. So instead of giving you a number of hours, let me walk you through the steps it takes to produce a single video. Step one, writing a script. I write out every one of my scripts because that's just how my brain works. In order to record the talking head portions, I need to have some sort of script to work off of. Step two, recording the talking head green screen footage. This actually doesn't take very long, not more than an hour, basically because I'm just reading it off of the script. Step three, a rough cut of the video, which requires cutting down the talking head footage, adding the background, and removing all of my mistakes and pauses. I usually record about three times as much footage as what makes it into the final video. So for simplicity, let's say I have a 10 minute final video. That means I probably started with around 30 minutes of footage. Step four, adding titles, graphics, and stock footage. And this is by far the longest part of the whole process. Sometimes I have all the footage that I need and it's relatively simple and straightforward. Sometimes I need to go out in the city and take some photos or take some videos. And sometimes, either because I can't get that footage easily or I just don't have enough time, I'll buy it from a stock photo or video website. Step five, create the thumbnail. This is another one that people think is just like a 10 minute thing, but anyone who makes videos on YouTube can tell you this is one of the hardest parts of the whole process. Some people even go as far as to say they spend more time making the thumbnail than the actual video itself. That's not the case for me, but creating the thumbnail is a time-consuming step. Step six, upload the video to YouTube, write a description, add links to anything mentioned, add all the video tags. Again, this is the kind of thing where if you've never done it before, you think, oh, that's just a five-minute thing, but it winds up taking longer than you think. And step seven, promotion. Once you post a video, I also post about it on Facebook, on Instagram. I try to get the word out that there's a new video. The way that all these platforms work now, just because I post a video doesn't mean that everyone who's subscribed gets a notification that it's there. So you do have to do some promotion as well. That's all to say, there are a lot of variables. Some videos I can crank out more quickly than others, but all videos require a not insignificant amount of time. If you've noticed, I actually have published fewer full-length YouTube videos in 2023 than in any other year since I started TripHexDC. Part of that is because tours are just busier this year, and I'm focused on that. 
Part of it is that I've also started making YouTube Shorts videos in an attempt to keep up with what's fresh. And short videos are a whole other topic that I'm not going to go into depth now, but I'll just say that making short videos is time that I'm not spending making longer videos. So there's that too. Okay, so that's a lot about content production, which is a big part of TripHexDC. But a few people also submitted questions about DC itself. Let's start with Paige Muller, who joined me for episode 42 about five cool neighborhoods that you can check out when you visit DC. What do you like the most about DC? I really like this question, Paige, because it's so open-ended that there are lots of different ways I could answer it. I'm going to take a 30,000-foot view approach to this question, though. I think what I like most about DC is that it's a big city that doesn't always feel like a big city. It's a big city in the sense that we have three airports, a huge metro system, restaurants of just about every cuisine imaginable. We have a professional sports team from every single major league. And when I say it doesn't feel like a big city, what I mean is it has very different vibes than, say, New York City. If you've ever been to both D.C. and New York, you'll know exactly what I mean. It's not uncommon to be out and about in D.C. and for me to bump into people I know. In fact, Paige, if you remember, last year around Christmas, I was out and about getting footage of the Capitol Christmas tree, and you were nearby, and we bumped into each other and talked for 30 minutes. So that's the kind of small-town feel I'm talking about when I mean that it doesn't feel like a big city. And yet, when I want to get out of town, the world is quite literally my oyster. I can be in Philadelphia in an hour and a half on the train, New York City in three hours. I can get on a plane and fly nonstop to just about every big city in the United States. I can be in London in six hours or Tokyo in 15 hours. I meet travelers as a tour guide, and I know that that is not something everyone has access to. Lastly, on this question, I'll say that D.C. is just unique in the sense that all the great tourist sites that people come here for, we have access to all the time. There are certainly times when I get incredibly frustrated that the federal government is here, but at the same time can't deny that without it, we wouldn't have a lot of the amazing things that we do have. Okay, let's go back to Rebecca Grawl for a question about something I just mentioned in passing. Hi, Rob. It's Rebecca. My question is, what's your favorite D.C. sports team? Excellent question, Rebecca. First, let me say that I love watching sports. I may not be good enough to play any of them, but I love watching. And I am a fan of all DC sports teams except for the NFL team. Over the past few decades, the ownership of that team, the culture of that team, everything about the team has been horrible, and I can't bring myself to be a fan. I know there's new ownership coming in for the upcoming season, but I do think they need to win people back and that we shouldn't just assume that new ownership means that things are going to be immediately great. As for my favorite, judging strictly from the team whose games I attend the most, it's the Washington Nationals. I've attended more Nationals baseball games than all the other teams combined. I think baseball is an awesome spectator sport, especially in person. I think the games have good vibes good atmosphere, and are generally pretty family-friendly. The Nationals haven't fielded the best team the past couple of seasons, but they did win the 2019 World Series, and that was definitely an exciting time for me. I've also recently started getting into soccer, which is not a sport I watched for most of my life. I think the first time I really watched it seriously was during the 2020 Olympics, the ones actually held in 2021 in Japan. We have two pro soccer teams here, DC United in the MLS and Washington Spirit in the NWSL. Both teams play at Audi Field, which is a really nice soccer venue that just opened in 2018. 
Now, I personally find that the more diehard soccer fans typically go for DC United. They've been around longer and developed a pretty dedicated fan base. I personally have found the Washington Spirit as the more accessible team if, like me, you're new to soccer and you don't really know what's going on. Spirit games are lots of fun and definitely have more of a family-friendly vibe than United games do. But both are cool experiences. If you happen to be in town when there's a game happening, check it out. Okay, let's go back to Carolyn Moraskin from DC Design Tours for another DC-specific question. Hi, Rob. It's Carolyn from DC Design Tours. What's your favorite neighborhood in Washington, DC, and why? Just like the other question you asked, Carolyn, this one seems a bit unfair because how do you choose? Well, okay. Honestly, if I had to choose, if you forced me to, I would choose Capitol Hill. I really like this neighborhood because it feels like classic DC with the old historic row houses, but also some modern buildings and amenities mixed in. Capitol Hill also has a much quieter, more residential vibe than, say, downtown D.C., the area closer to the White House does. But at the same time, there are lots of great restaurants in Capitol Hill, and it's the kind of place that, on a nice, crisp fall day, I just want to take a stroll and explore. One thing I will say is that, while this may be my personal favorite, it doesn't mean that it has to be your personal favorite, too. There are over 100 neighborhoods in Washington, D.C., all with their own unique character, unique quirks, and the best neighborhood is often the one that is best for you. All right, let's go back to Paige Muller, who has an interesting culinary question. What do you really think of the famous DC foods? If you've been following Tripex DC for a while, then you probably know that the famous DC foods are half-smoked sausages and wings with mumbo sauce. What do I think of these foods? Let's just say if I went to a restaurant and they were both on the menu... I probably wouldn't choose either. People ask me about Ben's Chili Bowl all the time, as it's the most famous place to go for half-smoked sausage. And Ben's has an amazing history, and an amazing story, and amazing owners. So go to Ben's for those reasons. But make sure it's the original location on U Street, not the location in the airport or the stand at Nationals Park. Those don't count. I personally don't think I've been to the Ben's on U Street in over a decade. So... I think that pretty much says it all. As for wings with mumbo sauce, I love chicken wings. They're actually my guilty pleasure. I would love to travel to Buffalo, New York and do a week-long wing tour. But mumbo sauce is not specifically for me. Most mumbo sauces, I find, are fairly sweet. And I like my wings spicy, not sweet. I think it's definitely worth trying if you've never had it before. But it's not something that I crave when I want wings. Now... Ethiopian food and Salvadorian food are sometimes considered DC foods. And I don't think that's really accurate as they're really foods from those countries. But I love both, and I think we're really lucky to have so many great restaurants of both cuisines in DC. And you should try them both when you're here because they're delicious. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out this episode. If you're still listening, thank you for sticking it out till the end. If you didn't listen to this podcast, I would have never made it to episode 50, which I still think is an incredible accomplishment. And thank you to all of my friends and former guests for sending these questions and contributing to the episode. I am extremely lucky to have hosted so many great guests over the years. I am able to produce this podcast, the DC YouTube channel, and all DC content completely free and ad-free because of everyone who signs up for a tour. So if you have or are planning on it, then you are absolutely my favorite people. 
And if you want to find out more about those tours, just head on over to the website and check it out. Here's to the next 50 episodes. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.